So what are rear window ethics, you think? Oh, I I don't I don't even know. I'm going to I'm going to go off of what you say. I'm going to default to you and and sort of chime in where I have an opinion. I don't know. I don't really I'm not a snoop. I'm not a snoopy person. I think you, me, and Grace Kelly are of the same mind there, which is we don't know much about rear window ethics, but I think it's implied that Jimmy Stewart knows even less. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely an interesting movie. I'm going to be curious to hear your takes on some of the stuff that goes on in this movie. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I'm here for the romantic plots. That's for sure. So let's go ahead and do it. If you did not hear the first part of this week's theme, we are Necromancer. Necromancer. My name is Shira. I'm a rom-com fan. My name is Brett. I'm a horror movie fan. Each week, we choose a movie. I choose a rom-com. Brett chooses a horror. We make each other watch those movies, and then we remix them in the opposite genre. We did for our romance, I picked What's Your Number?, And we turned that movie into some spooky, silly horror movies. Mm -hmm. And now we are moving on to Brett's pick, Rear Window. Yeah. uh, I mean, is this maybe the quintessential neighbor horror movie? It is because it's been remade so many times. It was remade with Christopher Reeve. I actually saw that version. It's almost shot for shot, scene for scene, exactly the same uh, as the original. And then there was um, Disturbia with uh, Shia LaBeouf and that guy who played George Washington. I can't remember his name. Um, yeah, I, don't, I can't remember too much about that movie. <laughs> but but yeah, the, the whole something's up with the neighbor theme. Rear Window was the first one to do it. And movies have just been repeating it ever since. So you you just went right back to the, the genome for it all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. I know that we, we have those few kinds of movies that we like, right? Sometimes we like to pick the underrated hidden gem. Sometimes we like to pick a movie we've never seen before, and we just use this podcast as an excuse to watch movies. But it's been a while since I picked a classic, and I don't think This we've is the done... oldest movie you've picked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's the first Hitchcock movie. I mean, if we're talking horror movies, at some point we're going to have to do a Hitchcock movie. Well, I can't wait for us to do a Hitchcock episode at some point because he also directed one of my favorite rom-coms, the original Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So Ooh. the man knows his way around a comedy as much as he does a thriller. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Hitchcock. This guy knows how to make a movie. <laughs> this is probably my favorite Hitchcock movie. Really? This one? Oh, I love this movie. I love this movie so much. For sure. I re- okay, how about how about this? I recently 
rewatched The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, right? And mm-hmm. that movie is an extremely purely cinematic movie. But it takes place in the Wild West, the Civil War West. So it's like I thought it was in the Spaghetti West. Well, it's in no. it's a Spaghetti <laughs> I'm just, West. I'm, I'm yeah. kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but it's you know it takes place in the West, which is like it's an inherently cinematic vibe for a movie. You know, westerns. Yeah, this movie is a super cinematic movie but it all takes place inside one room and there's so much visual storytelling going on. There's so much purely visual storytelling going on that this movie, the only, like the only way that this movie could really be done is this way. And yeah, they've made remakes of it or they've ripped it off or they've done different versions of it. But like, rear window, I think we'll talk about it by the end of the movie. Cause I don't know how you're going to, like, yeah, there's stuff in this movie that is dated and is not good, but I don't know, man. I think by the end of this movie, like, even though the end is a little bit silly, it, ah, that. I like, like the end. I like it's, it. It's a great twisting of a rubber band. Like, I don't know if I've ever been more excited to see a rubber band snap in a movie, but at the same time, like, I just enjoyed every time. Uh, Hitchcock cranked that rubber band into a tighter and tighter. This strength. is what I'm talking about, though. Suspense in a Hitchcock movie, you know what's going to happen. Hitchcock has made no attempt to obscure exactly what's going to happen, but the amount of anxiety that you feel over these events that you can't control is so much. It's, you know... Carrie really capitalizes on the tension of knowing when you're at the prom. And it's very, very clear in Rear Window that everything that's happening is only going to go in a terrible direction. Like, it can only lead to a confrontation with the the beast, you know? It, it's It's like the saying goes... Whoever fights monsters or don't stare in the abyss unless you want the abyss to stare back. You know, once you once you look at it, you give it the ability to look back at you. And so um, none of the tension is anything that has to do with a surprise or a twist. It's all expected. And that that's what I like. I think that that's a masterclass talent when you can pull the emotions without being cheap with surprises. Yeah. This movie is, is not in it for the twisty tour, twisty turny gotcha moments. This movie's in it for that slow, slow burn. And uh, it's also a romance trope too, you know, slow burn, something that people actually really go for. Sometimes I'm not into it. I think (laughs) insta lust is real. (laughs) (laughs) All right, should we should we get into it? Yeah. All right. So, here is Rear Window. LB Jeffries or Jeff for short is a photojournalist. I guess he's he would be a photojournalist, right? Because he takes extreme pictures and he goes on assignment in rough places. So, he's, you know, he's a particular kind of photographer. 
Yeah, um, he's like an Indiana Jones archaeologist. Like those kinds of archaeologists don't really exist. This kind of photographer doesn't really exist. <laughs> yeah, everybody takes gigs, you know. Right. I, th- his whole um, pretentiousness about taking gigs, like fashion photography, is so like get over yourself. Yeah, he's think- a little art gatekeeping at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> Well, you know, you were saying that this movie is antiquated, but actually Jeff and Colin from What's Your Number are dealing with the same issue. They're commitment phobic men who can't who can't imagine the idea of cohabitating with a woman until she literally shows them exactly how it's going to work. And they're like, OK, this isn't as bad as I thought. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's just as that much about men hasn't changed. Um, all right. So he's recuperating from a broken leg and he's begun spying on the neighbors in his apartment complex out of boredom. And he's visited daily by two people. His physical therapist, Stella, played by Thelma Ritter, Chef's Kiss and his girlfriend, Lisa. Uh, Stella tells Jeff to stop spying on his neighbors and marry Lisa, but Jeff doesn't want to get married. Uh, and then that night, Lisa comes by looking like a million bucks, is ready to serve Jeff a four-star meal. She even brought a waiter from a fancy restaurant, but somehow this woman's not good enough for marriage because she just can't pack up and go anywhere. Um, cause that's his, his Jeff's requirement for an ideal partner is a woman who's willing to follow him around the world and basically rough it and never complain about it and just do anything, any, anytime, anywhere, which is so uncompromising when he's getting the best treatment from Lisa. Um, you know, you know, like his character definitely is. A scumbag? Well, he's a castrated male. He just feels castrated because his leg is broken and he's being tended to by these women and he he feels, you know, weakened. Yes, but I think Jimmy Stewart's got that charm where if you stick with him through the movie, then you start to like him and then by the end of the movie, he does come around and he... Oh, I love Jimmy Stewart. Trust me, I love jimmy stewart love 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 him um but in this movie he's being such an ass to such an ass <laughs> to grace kelly and and i get it you're depressed because your leg's broken and you can't be a manly man and you're trapped at home and it's it, this movie has a lot of i know that hitchcock was a big fan of psychoanalysis there's a lot of freudian stuff going on in this movie and it, his resistance to marriage has everything to do with the fact that he has a broken leg and he's trapped in the domestic sphere. So for him, it's a prison. Um, but that night, Jeff hears a woman cry out and glass breaking. He then sees one of the neighbors, a salesman with an invalid wife, leave the apartment with his display suitcase around 2 a.m. in the pouring rain. And then he comes back several times uh, and leaves again and he does this till about three. And they do a good job of showing it to where Raymond Burr looks like the suitcase is lighter when he's right. coming back and then heavier when he's leaving. So 
well, what's he up to? Mm -hmm. uh, and then so the next day, Jeff notices that the invalid wife is no longer there and assumes that the salesman has murdered her. He tells Stella and Lisa about the weird happenings. And then they all start watching the salesman as he does more suspicious things like cleaning a knife and saw, uh, packing away all his wife's clothing and sending it away, going through all his wife's jewelry, including her wedding rings, which why would she not have her wedding rings? Uh, so Jeff gets in touch with Davies, a friend who's a detective, and Davies doesn't think there's anything going on uh, with the salesman who we now know is named Lars Thorwald. Davies has an explanation for every piece of evidence. Uh, but then later that night, Lisa and Jeff see a neighbor cry out because her dog was murdered. And this was the cutest little terrier that would get in and out of a basket to go potty. And, but his owners lived on the third or fourth floor. It, it was very cute. And I was sad about him. Um, but Jeff thinks that Thorwald killed the dog because he didn't come to the window and the dog was sniffing around the flower bed. Uh, yeah, great, so great little like, foreshadowing elements of you know like when the dog's sniffing around us the audience are like oh shit like we we're, we're already two steps ahead right the movie isn't by intention right and then but the way that raymond burr is just like oh you sweet little dog get out of here and he's just so nice to the dog and he's just like pats him and he's like just get out and you're like oh he's not a mean guy but mm, he is a mean guy and then the cigarette the glowing cigarette in the darkness. Oh, yeah. Oh, what a shot. Like that that's great. Him just sitting in the dark smoking a cigarette. Yeah, that's definitely after killing your wife activities. Um, so Jeff writes a note to Thorwald asking, What have you done with her? And then Lisa goes and slips it under Thorwald's door. She deftly escapes notice and makes Jeff realize that she's a lot cooler than he initially thought. He thought that this was some high society gal who couldn't rough it, but Lisa is game. Uh, and Thorwald freaks out. Jeff calls him, gets him to go across the street under the pretext of meeting him. So then Stella and Lisa can dig through the flower bed, but then they don't find anything. Lisa goes back to Thorwald's apartment. She finds the purse with the wedding ring, but then Thorwald comes back to the apartment. He catches Lisa red-handed. You know, this is one of those moments where you might expect that, oh, she got away the first time. Uh, she can get away this time, but no, he catches her. He straight up catches her. Uh, Jeff has called the police though. And then they're just, Stella and Jeff are watching as Thorwald is about to assault Grace Kelly, the princess of Monaco. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the police come, they arrest Lisa. She signals across the courtyard, uh, to Jeff that she's got the ring, but then Thorwald catches her signaling and he looks across the courtyard and spots Jeff. So Jeff calls Davies, confirms that they've got enough evidence to go after Thorwald. Stella leaves so she can bail out Lisa, which means Jeff is alone and we hear someone coming up to his door, opening it. There's Thorwald. 
Jeff has grabbed a camera flash and some flash bulbs, and he uses the flashes to slow Thorwald's approach. But then Thorwald gets to him. He's about to throw him off of the balcony. But then two policemen break Jeff's fall. Thorwald is arrested. We cut to some time later. Jeff now has two broken legs. Uh, And Lisa is on his bed reading a book. But then when Jeff falls asleep, she switches out the book for Harper's. Aww. She she hasn't changed. She didn't have to change. He needed to change his mind and see her for how she really was. Yeah. Um... So, yeah, I do think that this movie is a little dated. Um, like, if I were to show this to someone who's coming into film school now, it probably, like, there's enough stuff in here where you're just like, that's just not how, it's so alienating and culture shocking of, like, that's just not how the world works anymore. You know, like, this is just not how things happen. But... By the end of the movie, I imagine no one or I imagine everyone, no matter how cynical or pouty they are about like, hey, this is a dumb movie from when was this movie made? The, There's nothing dumb about the only dumb thing about this movie is the person who referred to Jimmy Stewart as a young man. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not very young in it. But I mean, it's just like a it's just like a dumb silly cheesy movie but by the time you get to the end where where lisa's in the other room and then the guy's coming up the stairs and like i like i can't imagine anyone just not sitting there with their hands gripping the seat and just like leaning forward going like what's gonna happen like this movie transcends the the time of the 50s and it's it's just a classic, classic really, horror movie. It really is, and it is very cinematic. You know, if you're if you want to talk about that, I know you hate opening credits, but the opening credits for this movie are so sophisticated and elegant, and with the shades coming up. Uh, and I wrote down when Grace Kelly entered and we see her for the first time because they build her up because he's talking about Lisa. You see a brief picture of her. You're thinking, who is this woman? What is she going to be like? And then she starts turning on lamps and she's so sultry and sexy. I wrote that I could watch Grace Kelly turn on lamps all day. From from moment one, when you see her, and it's not just about her looks, but it's like from the moment her very you meet essence. her, just everything about her is like, this woman is absolutely perfect in every single way. And then there's Jimmy Stewart going like, me, me, your nails are too pretty. You'd never make it in the desert. And you're like, oh, Jimmy Stewart, get over yourself. Right. Yeah. Like you're really going to lose your integrity for taking a few fashion assignments. You can't take a picture of a pretty girl for money. Come on. And I have to assume that she makes a lot more money than him because she's a really successful model. So why does she have to follow him around the world? Right. Yeah. I don't know if this, um, 
I mean, we mentioned it during Motel Hell, like the big question of, is this movie doing it on purpose? Is this movie being sexist on purpose so that the character can learn and overcome it? Or because I know Hitchcock has some problems with no, I think that that it, kind of stuff. No, that's why I say that this movie is very Freudian, where this man is resisting with all of his might the sort of symbolic castration that he's experiencing. You know, in the face of this unstoppable, beautiful woman, I think that the other women in the complex are just parts, Miss Torso and the invalid wife who becomes a dead body. And Lisa cannot be reduced. In fact, she reduces him. He ends up breaking another leg. So he knows that by by giving in to Lisa, I think there's this sense on his side that if he gives in to this marriage to this relationship, he's going to lose himself and he's going to compromise in ways that he's not going to come back from. And that to him is just completely unbearable until he sees that this isn't bad. This isn't a nightmare. This is actually wonderful. And I should want to be with a fully realized person. Right. Yeah. So I just, um, I don't know. I just really like the charm of this movie, even though he, like he's not a total irredeemable asshole, but he is cringy and he is gatekeeping and he is a jerk. But by the end of the movie, he kind of comes around. Uh, there maybe could be a good groveling scene where he grovels to her. He, <laughs> but, learns, uh, he learns his lesson though. He, but he does. Yeah, he does. And I think he's not a complete cad because you get the sense that, I mean, there is there is a sense of luridness about the way that he's really into watching the neighbors, but it's not it's not uncaring or or from a need to hurt them or something like like what when the when the actual murderer stares across from him and thinks I'm going to kill, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to kill this guy. No, that that's not Jimmy Stewart's vibe. Like, I think that that's why the B plot of Miss Lonely Hearts is kind of there to show these characters humanity because they're not just looking across the street and seeing murders. They're also observing connections happening or not happening. So in my summary, I didn't talk about Miss Lonely Hearts, but I loved the B plot of, We see her dining alone. We see her deciding to leave the apartment and have dinner in public. And then she brings a guy home, but he's awful Mm. and he leaves. And then she's going to commit suicide. And Jimmy Stewart's about to call the police to come, you know, rescue her and prevent her death. But then she hears the piano player's music and that stops her. And then at the end of the movie, the piano man and her are together and he's stopped drinking because he had his own plot line where he was drinking and partying all the time and he was very unfulfilled. 
and his relationships were very superficial. And then they came together. He had too many people. She had too few. It was, I, I loved their romance so much. Yeah. This movie is very English literature 101 kind of stuff. Where like, what a coincidence that I'm an English major. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I do just love it though. Just how every character has this obvious representation of something. And um, I mean, honestly, I say this is my favorite Hitchcock movie. I there's There's some other good ones that I do really like for sure. But ultimately it's the scene where uh, Jimmy Stewart, answers the phone and says, Hey, I think Thornwall is blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, uh. And then you realize that it's the neighbor. on the phone. <gasps> That's right. I liked that part too. My favorite shot of the entire movie is like the, the next one or two shots where we get this high angle camera of Jimmy Stewart looking over his shoulder in his wheelchair and the camera stays still and Jimmy Stewart looking over his shoulder stays still, but he slowly wheels his chair to turn into the close-up shot. And it just, like, I I can't, other than, other than you need to watch the movie and you need to watch the entire movie build up to that one shot to just truly understand how great that shot is, like, it's such a, a scary tense shot and all it is is a high angle close-up well I it's love it again perfect tension because you know exactly what's going right. to happen next uh-oh the killer called he's coming and that escalation of not only does he now have to turn and face the door, he has to listen as the steps thump up right. to his door and know exactly who it is. Right. And the dread of saying, yes, it is him that it, it could be no one else. <laughs> right. Yeah. I like, I do like how this movie, this movie does everything it can to tell the main character, no, you're crazy. You're, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. Stop spying on these people. You're absolutely wrong. This movie goes through every logical step of the way to say, Hey, he did not kill his wife. He absolutely did not. But we're an audience watching a Hitchcock horror movie and we know the more they build it up that he didn't do it. We know the more, no, this guy did do it. And so then before the big final action-y confrontation scene to have that moment of pure tension of like, like you said, it's not whether or not this guy did it. It's that moment of like, now we have to wait for this very intimidating, capable psychopath to take on this incapable, wheelchair-bound snoop. And the, it's, it's so like the, it's such an unfair fight. And then we get the silly little part about the flash light bulb stuff, which, you know, is a little dated for the time. It's a little silly, but. I don't think that would have stunned him as much as it stunned right. him. It's like, it's Raymond like. Raymond Burr was like a bear. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's like a He's like a Mega Man boss or something. It's like, let me, let me use this power 
to expose your weakness. And like every time he flashes it, he does the same eye thing. And I mean, it's silly. And then all the speeding up, all the characters are sped up as they run to the window. And like, yeah, it's a little silly, but man, I don't know for a 1954 horror movie, like this movie's on point. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it's uh as we've said before it's uh taut very very taut so shall i ask who did you have a crush on in this movie Mm, i feel like i know who your crush is so i'm gonna pick someone else to highlight because wait 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 wait. i assume you think i'm gonna say miss grace kelly no stella oh thelma ritter yeah no, no. I mean, I think Thelma Ritter's fine in this movie. I, there are movies where I like her more. Um, I actually really liked Miss Lonely Hearts. I okay. think that she did some really great acting where, I mean, by default, we were getting, you know, far shots of her. So she had to express a lot of emotion without a lot of information other than just what we saw from her visually. And there was a lot of depth there. Yeah. Uh, I also like how they called all the people by their names, like Miss Lonely Hearts or Songwriter or Miss Torso. Like, I, I like, you know, instead of him magically knowing everyone, and I guess it wouldn't be magical, but instead of him knowing everyone, like, oh, there's Mrs. Thompson, like, no, Lonely Hearts. I don't know who my neighbors are, but I have little head nicknames for them. Right. Like, of course. It's very yeah. relatable. Um, yeah, I would say my crush is the detective. Oh, Wendell Corey. Yeah, he... Nor superstar Wendell Corey. He plays it so well the first time when he comes over and and Jimmy Stewart's like, can't you just go in there and, and, and knock, kick the door in and grab the evidence? And he's like, uh, that was a great Jimmy Stewart impression, by the way. (laughs) Um, I like his, his sort of laid back, like, yeah, even if he was a bad guy, there's nothing I can do about it because we have due process in this country. Like I can't do anything about it. And you're a crazy person. Uh, Yeah. Wendell Corey has been in a lot of thrillers and noirs as a detective or the main guy. Uh, So having him be that guy in this movie feels kind of like a meta moment. Y'all have to go back and watch, look at some of his stuff and watch it. Cause I really like him in this movie. Yeah. He's really, really good. I mean, and Raymond Burr too. He's, he's done his fair share. Right. I would most, most know him for the American version of Godzilla. So I'm curious to know what kind of hijinks and antics you put Lisa and Jeff into for this kind of movie. Well, you know, I love, I love a good grovel and I love a good lesson So I decided to keep that part the same. Uh, Once again, I was very lazy with my retitle, and I just called it Rear Entry. Aha, butt sex. All right. Um, (laughs) Uh, Is this this an American Pie 7? American Pie 7, Rear Entry. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um. 
terrible. Uh, but I, I just was like, yeah, rear window, rear entry, ha. Um, so <clears throat> Lisa Martin is a successful supermodel in New York City, and she seems to have it all. The one problem is her longtime boyfriend, Jeff. Lisa wants to get married and move in, but Jeff does not. Uh, worse, Jeff has also started to become a recluse since he broke his leg during a photography assignment, and he basically spends all his time at home alone, spying on the other tenants of his apartment complex. So then one day, Lisa overhears Jeff telling his physical therapist that he's never going to marry Lisa because marriage ruins men, and she'd never be the kind of girl who'd go around the world with him. Lisa... Having prepared for fancy restaurant takeout to be hand-delivered to Jeff's apartment, throws the lobster at him. Uh, and Lisa tells Jeff that he's wrong. He's a jerk and he shouldn't be so shitty to one of the two people who bothers to visit him. She vows that she's going to prove to Jeff just how much he's missing when it comes to marriage and romance. So then Lisa embarks on a quest of creating and improving marriages around the complex while Jeff watches from his apartment. So instead of him watching the neighbors just go around their business, he's seeing Lisa do all of this stuff, interacting with his neighbors and thinking, what is she doing? She's crazy. <laughs> um, so Lisa sets up the female artist with Jeff's cop friend. She finds Miss Torso's long lost soldier boyfriend she helps the newly married couple stop fighting by sending them gifts from each other. Uh, and then she has the piano man play a performance for a man and his invalid wife who can't leave her bed. So in this version, uh, the salesman and his wife are they're getting along better, but they're sad because they don't get to leave their home like all of us during this pandemic. Um, and then one by one, the couples get together, the complex is filled with excitement and joy, and then Jeff cycles first through denial that Lisa is actually helping anyone, and then he starts to get really angry and jealous when he sees her visiting the piano man in his apartment. Because remember how Lisa kept talking about how great he was? So Lisa also sees that Jeff is watching her and looks back at him like, See, I don't need you. I can be with anyone. Uh, and then it basically Jeff is starting to understand he's been wrong about Lisa. She's a really cool person and he was being an ass. Uh, and so he has been fuming about Lisa and the piano man. And that's when he begins to notice Miss Lonely Hearts, the one resident that Lisa hasn't helped yet. Uh, and he sees how Miss Lonely Hearts reacts to the piano man's music, Jeff decides he needs to talk to Lisa. So then he tries to convince Lisa that piano man and Lonely Hearts should get together, but then Lisa calls him out for being jealous and implies, well, maybe I'm interested in him for me. Uh, and then and then you can get with Lonely Hearts if you're so concerned. Uh, Jeff is like, well, you can't be serious, uh, and she basically asks him, so are you ready to admit that I'm right, that you love me, that you want to marry me, uh, and you don't want me to be with anyone else? Because that's what you're basically saying. But Jeff, being stubborn, says, not a chance. 
So the war mm-hmm. continues. Uh, Lisa leaves in a huff, but not before throwing Jeff's back scratcher across the room to where he can't reach it. Um, so maybe we can have a bit where he is like using the back scratcher as they're arguing and she's like enough with this back scratcher. Uh, in this version of a rear window, I like to think that Lisa's a little bit more of a spitfire. Right. Um, so she leaves days pass. Jeff is now depressed because he now knows he's really screwed things up and everybody else in the complex is happy. Um, so that night he thinks he sees Lisa kissing the piano man. It breaks his heart, but then it also inspires him to stop being such a dick about marriage. Uh, so with his cast due to be removed, Jeff begins looking for photograph jobs in the city, uh, something he would have never considered before. He stopped spying on the neighbor so much. Uh, so he doesn't really notice whether or not Lisa's around, And then he also begins taking physical therapy a lot more seriously. So he's, you know, he's making a turn. Uh, Soon he's walking again. He begins interacting with the residents itself. I would say one of Jeff's problems is that he doesn't have connections with anyone. He has these two women who come see him and maybe he has one friend, but he has zero relationships, zero connections. This guy needs friends. Um, So he's, he's taking a turn Uh, And then the residents invite him to a tenant party. At the party, Jeff sees Lisa for the first time since they broke up. And she's talking to the piano man. And he sees that the piano man has a ring on his finger. And he assumes that they've gotten married. And he's like, you know, seems like congrats are in order. But then that's when the piano man reveals that he's on the arm of Miss Lonely Hearts and that they had gotten married during this time jump. Lisa looks at Jeff mischievously, un- implying that she understood that he was mistaken. Uh, so then they go back to Jeff's apartment where we get the obligatory grovel. He's wrong. She's right. He wants her to stay. He loves her. And then, of course, Lisa reveals that he was hoping that he'd say that because she'd packed for the occasion Showing her nightgown and slippers. The end. Oh, yeah, they gotta. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, you gotta give happy endings. Gotta get that H E A. Yeah, I like it. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought about something very similar too, where it was like that kind of matchmaking sort of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I know that you don't like royalty mixed with your rom-coms. Oh, do you have a prince? Oh, I have, I have a whole bunch of princes. Wait, one, two princes stand before me? A bunch. I've got like a dozen. Wait, this, this is a... Maybe not a dozen, maybe half a dozen. Is this a complex full of princes? Yes, and princesses. Sounds like an anime. Great. It, I, I did. You know, when I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't think of like a funny, silly title. All I could think of was Behind Closed Doors. But <laughs> um, but I did think of an anime in terms of like, oh boy, we can have this weird alternate reality where like royalty is more important. Right. Like it's like a future. Monarchy still exists. But they're somehow benevolent. Right. So it's like the future, 
of now where like maybe there's a uh there's a lot of talk show stuff there's a lot of big brother type uh reality show type stuff and so maybe there's going to be this big wedding thing that's going on and the whole what i'm thinking of is the whole entirety of of world peace somehow depends on the right world country leaders marrying off their princes and princesses to the other countries who they all have a pact like okay if this person marries this person then we'll do a a, a deal with this person who can marry this person so basically we're going to have this one giant royal wedding full of like it's it's not just one wedding it's 20 weddings in one all at the same time all to celebrate world peace and after this wedding happens there'll be no more wars it'll just be all world peace pretty nice so like the olympics but with weddings right and so we've got this overbearing wedding planner guy who's like everything has to be perfect uh, I don't know what his name is. Maybe we can call him. What was the guy's name? In, Marcel. Um, the, Mar- who's Marcel? I don't know. That just sounds like an uptight, starchy sure. wedding planner guy. Yeah. So Marcel. Marcel is uh, the the starchy guy. And then what I'm thinking is Jeff gets hired on as this like psychic guy who his whole gimmick is that he helps people discover the problems of their relationships so that they can get to the root of them. And then they can like be a happy couple because they got rid of all the problems. But the the thing is at his little retreat where he's at, he's his whole, his whole hotel where he does his like, come stay with me for the weekend and I'll fix all your problems. He's kind of like a schmucky kind of guy, but he's got all the rooms bugged. So he he's not a psychic. He just he's he's like a voyeur who listens to these people when they're at their most vulnerable. And then he pretends to have these psychic responses to them. And so he's hired on as a way to be like, hey, we need you to to we need you to figure out any problems before they happen so that you can solve them because this is a bunch of arranged marriage stuff. Of course there's going to be problems. So Jeff, you got to fix it. And he's going to, I don't know what he gets like the prize. He gets a big money prize or something, big paycheck or whatever he wants. And then, um, yeah. So then Lisa is this love guru type. So it's kind of like enemies to lovers where she's got her own style of doing things. He's got his own style of doing things. And they're both trying to help the Royals. They're both trying to help the Royals, but Lisa kind of calls out Jeff at the beginning to say like, Hey, I don't think your psychic way of approaching this stuff is really healthy. And he's like, uh, yeah. And she basically catches on to him right away. You're a fake. And he's like, you can't tell anyone I'm a fake. Like, this would be bad news for me, man. Like, don't tell anyone I'm a fake. So he has to get her to do all of his snooping for him so that she can help. But we're going to come up with crazy scenarios, right? So basically, she has to do all this snooping for him. And she has to, like, maybe she's a love guru who's a therapist. So she's got to go talk to all these people and then give him the scoop on them so that he can... like kind of preemptively figure out what their problems are going to be so he can solve them ahead of time. So basically what if they are like war captives, like where, you know, cause these are all monarchies and we'll assume that they're, you know, dictatorial monarchies. 
what if they kidnapped him and her? And then if they fail to bring these royals together, they're going to get executed. So they have to work together. I like it. Yeah, it's 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 war. Maybe the movie can be called War and Peace because those are the only <laughs> two options. War and people are like, did they just make that Russian book into a rom com? Like, no, 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 no. This is the, the other war. And <laughs> the peace. other war and peace. You know the way it was meant to be done. This is wars and pieces. Yeah, uh, I like that idea. So then, basically, we just have a bunch of different gimmicks where we put these people into scenarios where they need to be doing things the right way the regal way the proper way so i'm thinking like dancing dining uh sports like a a fancy kind of sport like maybe tennis or polo or something but basically over the course of the movie jeff and lisa have to cause disruptions in the way things are supposed to be done so that these people can have real fun. And they realize that as they kind of throw wrenches into the system, that the Royals, all the Royals actually do like each other, but they don't like who they're supposed to like. So then we just get a big wedding scene at the end where, you know, it all comes down to maybe Jeff has to make one big decision And he has to do one big thing where it's like, you know, I now pronounce you man and wife. You may kiss the bride. He's not the officiator, but he basically has to set up this thing where he gives everyone the okay to marry who they're going to marry. And then, you know, he's looking at Lisa and Lisa's like, these people aren't with who they're supposed to be with. They like, she needs to be with him. He needs to be with her and this. So then Jeff basically like risk execution to create this entire thing of pandemonium. Like he basically sabotages the wedding so hard. And even though it's televised, cause it's a Royal wedding, all of the chaos creates this like Rube Goldberg effect of like every, every possible thing that goes wrong goes wrong But the more things go wrong, the more the royals actually start to let loose and have fun. And the more they let loose and have fun, the more they naturally gravitate to the people they love. And then maybe when it's like the countdown, you may kiss the bride. Maybe it's on a timer or something, something to make it dramatic, a ticking clock. Maybe when the priest finally says you may kiss the bride or something, they all end up kissing who they truly love which means they're now all officially married to the person that they just kissed, which means all this extravagant, complicated planning of world peace of like this France princess has to marry this Spanish prince who has to, you know, this person has to marry this person. They all just marry whoever they want. And then the world is watching it is going like, yeah, true love wins. And then the world ends with world peace. And that's the movie. And obvi- and I want there to be kind of like, what's your number? How there's like a wedding scene at a wedding that doesn't take over the wedding. I want Lisa and Jeff's behind the scenes wedding, like ah. final moment to mirror the big chaotic final moment. So it's like they get the intimate wedding romance while the big couple, like while all the rest of the couples get the spectacle of the wedding romance. And so you kind of, you know, again, you have your sort of what's your number, you know, 
eat your cake and have it too kind of bit. I but like that. The movie ends with all the royalty in the world kissing and world peace. Everyone gets laid. That's my favorite kind of rom-com yeah, ending boy. where it's not not just not just the main couple. Everyone gets there. Yeah. That's why you liked um what was the movie the the big the big seduction the grand seduction the grand seduction yeah because right? everybody got laid at the end yeah all the old people were turning out the lights and smooching they deserve love too yeah so yeah behind closed doors or I'm sure there's some other thing I like wars and pieces <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one the aliens of the the war and peace genre timeline <laughs> franchise i like it i like it yeah all right shall we tell people where they can find us yes where can they find us well let's see you can find us on instagram at the necromancer podcast you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at NecromancerPod. And you can find us on Gmail at NecromancerPodcast at gmail.com, which is where you should reach out to us with your passionate stories about which of the remixes you want made into real movies, uh, what you love about the podcast, what you hate about it, random thoughts and feelings, uh, we are happy to take it all. So, since we have split this theme into two episodes, it gives us a chance to give another love bite, as we call our recommendations. So, what have you got for us, Brett? Mm, well, I wasn't going to do this as a love bite because I didn't. We didn't a hundred percent say we were going to split up this week. And I wanted to steer clear of recommending video games because I've said on the podcast before I don't play a lot of video games. Oh, no, you should still recommend video games because I, I'm i almost ready to, within the next few episodes, I might recommend a video game to people. Oh, yeah. So, I've so I, need, I need it to be still allowed. Uh, I've definitely got a video game that I've been playing recently called The Mega Man Zero franchise so you know who Mega Man is I do know who Mega Man is surprising to me how many people don't know who Mega Man is and it's not like I think everyone needs a Mega Man yeah not everyone needs to have an intimate relationship with Mega Man but I thought Mega Man you do yeah I thought it was like Mario or Sonic or Pac-Man I thought like Mega Man was one of those iconic heroes that most people had heard of but apparently not if you don't know Philistines. Mega Man is not the same thing as Mega Man X, which is not the same thing as Mega Man Legends, which is not the same thing as Mega Man Battle Network, and Mega Man Zero, Zero, a character from the Mega Man X series. The Mega Man Zero series is a spin-off series of Mega Man X. So Mega Man Zero has his own series. Oh my god, these video games are complicated. However, uh, I bought the Mega Man Zero slash ZX Legacy Collection, so I got six games for the price of one, and it's freaking great. I'm on Mega Man Zero 3 right now. I'm almost at the end, and this game is freaking incredible. It's so good. If you like video games about robot dystopias and their solid action platformers, uh, this is the series for you. They're 
the writing in the series is not that great. The cutscenes in the series are almost non-existent. But if you know, it's that Godzilla level of like, if you buy into it, if you meet them halfway, you're gonna have a great time, man. I just love running around as zero, chopping up baddies, fighting these evil animal robot monsters. Zero is always kind of Mega Man's cooler older brother. Yes, Zero is the the Morpheus of the series. He's the he's like a lot of times in action movies the main character will kind of be more, you know, milk toast, but the side characters will be like everyone remembers Morpheus. Like holy shit, Morpheus is such a badass. Like yeah, Neo's cool, but Morpheus is a fucking badass. Uh I think Trinity is Pretty fucking badass. Everyone in the Matrix except Neo is cool. But I do like Neo. Neo Neo is cool, but Neo is Neo. Mega Man. Mega Man's the same way. Mega Man's goody two-shoes. He's the hero. He fights because he has to fight. Because he's a good guy. But Zero's but a bad Zero, boy. Oh, man. Zero is so freaking badass, man. Um, yeah, so Mega Man Zero. Uh, if you're into 2D action platformers... It's super cheap on Steam, and you get a bunch of games for, like, 30 bucks. It's crazy. And and the Mega Mans don't have a cohesive story, but Mega Man 0, 1 through 4 have a sort of building story. Like, some of the characters go from one game to another. Okay. You know, a lot of these Mega Mans are very lacking in the story department, and this, this version is not great but it's better it's again it's fun it's fun i I just like a lot of the design the character design the weapon design the moves everything just looks cool and it makes you feel badass isn't that what you want from a robot video game to feel like a badass i think that that about covers it yeah oh and super quick i'll try to break it down if you haven't seen my movie violence of the sun uh there's so many things. I had never played Mega Man Zero 2. I only played the first one before I rebought this. In Mega Man Zero 2, there's like a robot in a command center surrounded by an evil commander guy who has two evil henchmen type characters. And they're in a command center. And they're sort of in a resistance quarantine base. And they have to go fight this evil thing that's like a mysterious prisoner who, who gets out of prison. Violence of the Sun, the short film that I made last year, that's exactly like that's the plot of Mega Man Zero Two. They got it from you. Well, I got it from Mega Man Zero, but I didn't play that one at the time. So it was like it's just to me, it was one of those things where it's so cool to see. Like when I started playing Mega Man Zero Two, I wasn't like, "Oh man, I basically just ripped this movie off." I was like, "Holy shit, my like Mega Man is so ingrained in my DNA that the movie I made is basically like a spin-off movie of this spin-off game that's a sequel to, you know, like it was just so cool to me to go like, "Oh shit, like I'm on the same wavelength as Mega Man creators. I don't need to be on the same wavelength as people who are winning Oscars. I want to be on the same wavelength as people who are making Mega Man games." I hear you there. <laughs> I, I totally hear you there. I, I feel I feel similarly, though not I, Mega Man isn't the people I want to. I want to be on the same wavelength as Mindy Kaling or Tracy Wigfield. Those people. I got you. <laughs> um. All right. Yeah. Mega Man. Mega Man Zero. Mega Man Zero. Totally different. Oh my god. 
Good to know. Good to know. And so how about you? What's your love bite? So in part one, I recommended a romance, What Happens in London by Julia Quinn. So in, uh, with Rear Window being the one this time, I'm going to recommend another noir movie that features neighbors called In a Lonely Place. And it's directed by Nicholas Ray, starring uh, Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. Uh, they live across from each other in the same apartment complex. And without knowing whether or not Humphrey Bogart killed this girl, Gloria Graham decides to provide his alibi and say that she saw him when the girl was getting murdered. But it's very important to the plot that she doesn't actually know whether or not he killed this girl. She just decides to help him out. But it starts this relationship between them, and she begins to learn more about this guy. And she isn't sure if he's the kind of guy who would kill somebody or not. And it, it tracks their relationship. Uh, and it's just, it's a very well-written movie with great dialogue and fantastic acting. Although I will warn that it's a very sad movie uh, where I talked about uh, what happens in London's light mm-hmm. and funny and throffy in a lonely place is very heavy, but it's some of the best acting Humphrey Bogart has done and definitely among the best acting that Gloria Graham has done. Uh, So if you are a Humphrey Bogart completionist or a fan of noir, In a Lonely Place is worth checking out. Yeah, I can't remember pretty much anything about the movie, but I do know that I saw it and I do remember liking it a lot. Yeah, It's a very sophisticated movie that's about adult relationships. It's the kind of movie that I couldn't have watched as a younger person and really understood it or resonated with it. Um, But now... It you know, in a lonely place, it's it's it really hits you right right in the center. <laughs> all right, neighbor. Well, I guess that is all for today. Later. <laughs> Later, neighbor. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.